Good evening, everyone. Can you hear me? Can you hear me in the back? Okay. Um, well, welcome to the LSE. Uh, welcome to the Middle East Center. Um, my name is Roham Alvandi. I teach um, the modern history of Iran uh, and the Persian Gulf here at the LSE. Um, and I'm very, very pleased to chair this event uh, this evening um, with my good friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Pejman uh, Abdul Mohammadi who is a visiting fellow here at the uh, LSE um, Middle East Center. Um, before I introduce him, um, just a couple of housekeeping things. If you have your mobile phone with you, could you please switch it off or put it on silent? Um, so Pejman is going to speak for about 45 minutes or so, um, and then we will have a Q&A, um, and we need to be out of here by around about 6 o'clock, so I'll try to keep... Uh, to that. Um, uh, other than that, um, what shall I tell you about Pejman? Well, he's been here since March. Um, I barely had a chance to see him, <laughs> unfortunately, so this is a very nice, very nice event and a good occasion. Um, uh, he is a, um, a lecturer in political science and Middle Eastern studies at John Cabot University in Rome. Um, and his research and teaching focus on the politics uh, and history of modern Iran, the intellectual history of Iran, um, and the geopolitics of the Persian Gulf, uh, and more broadly the international relations of the Middle East. Um, and uh, he has produced um, this paper on the revival of nationalism and secularism in modern Iran, which I think you know is going to be the focus of his um, uh, re remarks today. Um, I'm also told, although I'm terrible with technology, but I've also been told that if you would like to tweet about the event, the hashtag uh, is hashtag LSE Iran. There you go. I have no idea what that means, but there you go. <laughs> um, okay, so please join me in welcoming Hejman Abdul Mohammadiv. Thank you very much, Rohan, for this nice introduction. Actually, it's good that we managed finally to meet a bit more and let's <laughs> hope continue like that. Well, uh, I would uh, just uh, uh, try to start very fast, like if we have time afterwards to, for questions and answers. And as you could see, the title is the research I'm doing here at LSE Middle East Center is the revival of nationalism and secularism in modern Iran. Actually, the most important uh, goal which brought me to start working on that is that in the last three or five years, the most attention has been focused on the foreign policy of Iran, nuclear deal, and all of these uh, cases and issues. And I think that also domestic affairs of Iran, and particularly what is happening within the civil society, needs at this moment an important care and attention. And that's why I started to work on that more profoundly. And uh, this research that I presented, which is a writing and working paper, still needs certainly to be more cared in the future. It's just uh, like, let's say, the first step of this, uh, this working that I'm presenting today. I would uh, divide the presentation in two uh, parts, in two phases. Uh, the first one will be focusing on the revival, actually, of nationalism and secularism. So I'm trying to bring some uh, example about that, the new generation, the, the demographic change in Iran, and the second part would be focus more a political science oriented um, approach, which is on the strategies 
and uh, the responsiveness of the Islamic Republic towards this threat. So on one hand to see the civil society, how it's changing, and on the other hand to see how the Islamic Republic is answering or the strategies of the state towards the civil society. Well, first of all, I have to underline that 1997, or let's say the end of the 90s, is a key point for my research as a starting date, because if we make a calculation from 1979 till 1997, we have 18 years exactly. So that's exactly the time that the first generation, post-revolutionary generation of Iranians, they came to the political arena. and. Uh, we could already see their arriving to the Iranian politics uh, from two interesting uh, political events. The first one, which is probably more note, uh, notable for the um, public, is the election of the reformist president, uh, Mohammad Khatami, who actually got 20 million uh, uh, votes, and um, an important part of these votes were coming from this new generation that at that time started to turn 16, 17, and 18. This was a political sign that uh, this new social force is coming inside the Iranian arena. But there is also a second interesting, more sociological aspect that shows the arrival of this new generation, which is simply, actually is, uh, two days ago was the anniversary of that, was this uh, uh, football match between Iran and Australia, the so-called Melbourne episode that Iranian soccer team managed to win against Australia and get qualified for 98 World Cup. Well, this was something which is certainly also kind of light and interesting, but at the same time, that day that Iran won against Australia in a very kind of not expected uh, from, the, from Iranians, we have seen suddenly, it was uh, 29 November uh, 1997, uh, we have seen millions of this young generation who turned exactly that year, 1718, coming to the street. And Tehran basically was invaded by this generation. And they were almost, I would say, 800,000, 1 million in the square. I had the luck to be between them, so I was from those, I mean, I did this research, but I was there also there. So that was very interesting because I remember, and this one I've stayed, I didn't have quota for that, but I have seen it myself, that the paramilitary forces of the Islamic Republic, who from 1979 till 1997 created an important repressive apparatus against the social behavior of the youth in the street, like not letting them listen to music, you know, this kind of thing in the street, they have seen suddenly this hundreds of thousands youth in the street dancing, cheering, and kind of uh, going beyond the imposition of Islamic Republic ethic. And at that point, the parliamentary forces, they didn't manage to repress or to stop or to arrest. They just left these youth doing their job that evening. But these two episodes showed, both on the democratic, demographic level and on the social level, that a new post-revolutionary generation in Iran arrived. So as a fact, de facto. And afterwards, actually, we have seen different uprising. Small one, but interesting one, particularly from the student world, from university world. We had 1999, the first student manifestation and demonstration, which was quite huge in Tehran University. And then 2003, and the end arrived in 2009, the well-known uh, Green Movement. So 
I mean, from 97, I start to argue that this new generation arrives and they start to create a changing in the structure of society in Iran. And two key points that I try to emphasize is the, uh, the revival of nationalism and secularism within this generation and also other. It's not that only the young generation is that, but mostly by the arrival of this generation we have this trend. So I try to make a kind of list of the most interesting things that are expressing the symbolic sources of nationalism. So the first one that I've noticed is the, let's say, the impressive revival, and particularly among the youth, of interest in the history of pre-Islamic Iran. So the coming back of the attention to the Cyrus the Great, Persepolis, Achaemenid dynasty, and the idea of the pre-Islamic Persia started to become much more studied and, uh, let's say, talked between this student and this youth, and not only student, this new generation. And uh, this could have seen also, for example, on the changing of the using of the names. If from 1979 till 1997, we have very much the use of names with Islamic origins, like Muhammad, Ali, or Mahdi, we start to change, have a shift of changing of the names. You start to have Kurosh, Cyrus, you start to have Darius, Darius and other names which are more uh, reminding the Persian identity rather than the Islamic identity. So this is one first interesting shift that you start to notice. I'm not saying that they start to be more than the Islamic one, but they start to increase between the, uh, within the society. The second interesting aspect is the visiting the prehistorical uh, archaeological sites of Iran. So between 1979 and 1997, actually you don't have so much attention of the old generation, the one who did the revolution actually, or who somehow were involved in the revolution on the Persepolis or Takht Jamshid, going there or to Pasargat, which is the tomb of the Cyrus the Great. So they were kind of abandoned. When this generation comes, then you start gradually to register and record an important visiting uh, of these prehistorical areas. Today, particularly, then I will show you also one uh, image, uh, Cyrus the Great's tomb is very much visited by the youth and is starting kind of being in competition with the Islamic icons. One, the most important one within Iranian society is the one in Mashhad, which is the Imam Rida shrine, which is the eighth Imam of the Shia. So in the same city, Mashhad, you have also the tomb of Ferdowsi. Well, Ferdowsi, probably you know, if you know, don't I just give a verse, is a, one of the most important iconic poets of the Persian identity. So, the visitors of Ferdowsi's tomb, they start in the last 10 years to increase gradually. I, they are not at the same level, certainly, of the Imam Rida, which is the eighth Imam of the Shia shrine, but they start to have an important increasing. And you start to have a kind of competition between the two, which somehow express in a symbolic way the contrast or somehow the cohabitation sometimes between what we call Iranism and Islamism within the Persian society. Another interesting uh, example of this revival of nationalism is also the phenomenon of conversions. This is a bit more difficult uh, in political science to measure that because uh, we have many, very, very many hidden conversions within the youth particularly, but not only, from Islam to Zoroastrianism, or to Baha'i religion, or to also Christianity, some also to Buddhism, and many atheism and agnostic. 
it's very difficult to give a survey on that because certainly the conversions are hidden mostly and it's very difficult to have an interview within Iran and to get the answer that yes, actually I don't believe anymore to Islam. What we did on July in one research that I quoted in, our in, in the paper is that we made an interview of 100 young Iranian between 20 and 40 that they just arrived abroad, like just between five years, like that they are, that they are rooted abroad. And we uh, made a question, very radical question, quite brave. Are you Muslim or not? Not saying, are you a Muslim who is practicing or not? No, are you Muslim or not? Very radical question on that. And we had 50-50 answer, like 50 were not, 50 were yes. From the 50 that were not saying, of course, off-record, promising that you don't publish their name, certainly. From the off-records one of the 50s, we had the highest one is Zoroastrianism, and then Baha'i, and then Christianity, like, descending. And many, of course, atheism were coming also out. And this shows also an interesting trend to seeing the conversion to Zoroastrianism, something like which is connected to the nationalism and the Iranism, which is coming up. Another interesting example that is coming out actually is on the, the, the ceremonies between the young couples. We have many young couples that they try now on their marriage ceremony to celebrate in a Zoroastrian Persian way without being a Zoroastrian. You could see there is a link on the paper on YouTube. You could go on the YouTube and click on that. It shows how this market is growing and people they want kind of off-record marriaging with more Persian identity, less use of Arabic languages and, and Islamic identity on that. And another interesting thing which came out is the use of uh, communication, the use of daily language. You have a daily confrontation between the one of the youths particularly, but not only, who are saying, for example, instead hello, they say durud, and the one who are saying salam. So you have a kind of hidden confrontation and competition, actually, between the both identities. The one who said durud, which is a more authentic person of saying hi, or the one who is saying salam, which is a bit more maybe Islamic-oriented and Arabic-oriented, or maybe the one who is saying Salamun Alaikum, which is really giving more Islamic identity on that. So, I mean, this is also another very interesting thing that you could see also in the in satellite, in websites. These are the most important things that we could actually uh, try to work on that. I said satellite. Actually, also satellite and website, certainly, and Internet, I mean, they exercise an important role on that. For example, uh, it's 15 years that there is one of the, the one which I think as a program coming from satellite, from particularly from United States, that they have been more influential is the, the so-called Sarzamine Javid program, which is uh, conducted with the one broadcasting guy who is uh, also a historian, uh, Bahram Moshiri, who has almost one million of uh, followers and who is listening to his broadcasting and what he's doing basically in the last 15 years is the revisiting Islamic history and bringing in the center again the, uh, the, the Persian idea of the Islamic history. So he's criticizing for example many things of the Islamic history and he starts to kind of influence the public opinion. So this is an interesting phenomenon that has been certainly uh, affecting on this revival which is coming so but this is not the only program there are various of them this is the most i think prominent one or popular one probably 
Then we have uh, from the nationalism uh, that again some signs which are coming, the celebrations of pre-Islamic feasts or parties, let's say. Two of them, the, the, the celebration of Sadeh and Mehregan, which are two uh, pre-Islamic uh, feasts, they were kind of abandoned in the last, from 97 until 2000, also 2000. And in the last 10 years, they start to be celebrated in the private, of course, in a private environment between youth and this new civil society, which is coming up, not all of them, just a part which is uh, attentive to these um, icons. And, uh, of course, the Nowruz, uh, or the New Year, and Charshambe uh, Suri, which is the fire feast and fire celebration, well, they kept, they, they have been always, they were too much rooted in the Persian culture and Iranian civil society, and after also the, the, the revolution, even though in the beginning uh, the Shia militia and the Islamic Republic doctrine, led by Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini, they wanted to diminish their importance within the Iranian society, giving more attention to the anniversary, for example, of the revolution, making the anniversary of the revolution kind of New Year, like in February, they, they wouldn't manage because it was too rooted in the Persian society, and the Nowruz survived, and it has been still celebrating every year. But one thing that Nowruz shows again about this identity conflict and revival of nationalism is how you use the decoration, the so-called hafsin, which is the table that you are putting different symbols on that, and it's tradition for Persians to put an important book also on that table. So many families, they put Quran, but many of them, they start and they are keep putting, for example, Shahnameh, which is the book, the poetry book of Ferdowsi. So the contrast between Shahnameh and Quran is an interesting contrast, which is the same almost on Durud and Salam. So it's a kind of small icons that they are showing up on this revival. And uh, the last thing on the nationalist part is the question of poetry, artistic trend. We had important poetry actions within Iran, within Iran, in Tehran, different poetry festivals that they are actually broadcasted in YouTube. Important young and not very also very young poets like Batkubei, Mustafa Batkubei, Hila Sadiqi. You have the references on the writing papers, and also YouTube link, you could go and see that in Persian there are these, and they are making this poetry within Iran, and many of them, they are celebrating the Persian identity, and they connect that to secularism and <coughs> claim for democracy. That's an important thing. Like, there is a combination of using patriotic icons, connecting with the claim of freedom of democracy. That's what brings me to the second part, which is the secularist one. So. I mean, the, this nationalist thing, one thing more is the use of the tattoo. Lastly, in bet between the youngs, you, you youth, you start to have an important use of tattoo, which tattoo itself is something not very accepted by Islamic doctrine, but on, beyond that, you have use, for example, now in the internet there is a trend, you could find, you know, things selling how to make a tattoo, and like this, within Iranians, and, for example, to make a tattoo of Cyrus the Great. So, to make a tattoo of, of Cyrus is a kind of double thing which makes, on one hand, the secularist approach, which I do not so much care of what Islam says, and on the other hand, the use of the nationalistic icon. So that, I was thinking that is a good symbolic idea about, about that. 
Certainly, this uh, nationalistic, if we want to call it, patriotic trends, two things I have to underline. Firstly, it's not something new for Iranian. That's why I'm calling re-emerging. I'm not saying just arriving now. If it's enough that we go back to the constitutional history of Iran, we go to the end of 19th century, we have important political thinkers like uh, Mirza Fatali Akhunzadeh or like Mirza Akhane Kermani, who already did this kind of ideas of mixing nationalism and secularism, nationalism and enlightenment for asking more political freedom. But this is a kind of re-emerging that after a long silence which could be started from 53 coup against Mossadegh on one hand or from 79 revolution. And for me it's difficult to say which one of them. But anyway, it after decades of silence is coming up again. Before I was saying 1953, lastly I'm more from 1979, but this is uh, something very subjective on the interpretations. And Green Movement, in 2009, I don't need to introduce that, we have noticed that between the young youth who came to the street, the demonstrators, the slogans were very important. Because actually many of the youth, they, were not, they didn't have any representation. So the slogans were very important. I found two slogans which are showing this patriotic, which is from one part of the Green Movement, not for all. Because the Green Movement could be divided in the Islamic Democrats and secular progressive. So maybe this nationalistic part was coming more from the secular progressive guys. Anyway, the slogan which is interesting is Estegal uh, Azadi Jumhuriye Irani, which was exactly the opposite of what their father in 79 said, which was Estegal Azadi Jumhuriye Islami. So, the father, they said, independence, freedom, Islamic Republic. This, the sons, or what you could call this new generation, 2009, in the streets of Tehran, they launched this slogan, independence, freedom, Iranian Republic. So it was a clear claim for something neutral, which should go beyond the Islamic ideology and most based on patriotism. I have to underline that these examples I said, they are non-organized action, which indirectly express political messages. So these are the things I have been trying to study on that, but they are not organized things. They are indirect political messages that I, using symbology and analysis of text in a better way could come out in a more methodological uh, perspective. But the same, uh, this youth, uh, they started to have, after 2010, 2009, 2010, uh, repression they had from 2010 till 2015, they are living and they lived a kind of post-depression situation, in my opinion. And we could have noticed that uh, these youth, they started to make silent and pacific kind of showing off during the last five years. One was in 2011, when they started, for example, to participate in an interesting uh, flash mob of playing with uh, water guns. They went to one park in Tehran and they start to play together with water guns and then they were arrested by the paramilitary forces and they were ac accused to be unmoral against the Islamic Republic ethic and these kind of things. And what happened was that these, some of these guys, they put on internet an interesting manifesto of happiness. That I recorded that in 2000, I didn't find it anymore, but at that time I recorded, I still have it, 
and, and I translated from Persian to English, and I think this manifesto, which in 2011 has been put on website, is important. I just read it, it's four links, I think it's important to read it. They said, we too have the right to happiness and beauty. We are tired of all of these limitations and obscurities. We want to live and have fun like all other young people in the world. We express our joy of living and playing. While you have sexually assaulted us in prisons, it's referring to green movement repression in the jails, we stopped our, uh, we stopped our feet on the ground <coughs> with our shoes for fun while you used your boots to step on us. On our heads, we put gel for the hair, while you beat them with truncheons. We take positions against your tanks, bout with our money, while you try to fight our pens, bout with our money. You are the ministers, and we are the people. You are the pure ones, and we are the infidels. Of course, it's an ironic way of and this claim for happiness has been very important and then there were in 2012 another flash mob they call the so-called long hairs flash mob this youth with the very long hairs like 80s 60s they went to the street they took a picture kind of kind of this kind of claiming and then the last one which is interesting is this against the compulsory hijab so there was a Facebook campaign very strong one almost 66,000 adherents where both Iranian secular women and Iranian Muslim women, they claim that there should be freedom of choosing if to put or not to put hijab. So this was another very interesting, uh, well these are, that I call them kind of secular demands and happiness, these are of course ending with 2014, I have in the end one small clip to, sh to see. Uh, that 2014, this youth, a group of them, that before they were using art underground, because I forgot to say that there are many rap movement, hip hop movement, which are underground. So the one group of these guys who were underground, they came up and they went to the roof of Tehran. And in 2014, they made this, uh, they kind of remade this happy of Farron Williams, and they made a kind of interesting show that we will see later on a, a very sh a short clip. And they kind of challenged the Islamic Republic orthodoxy. They were arrested, putting in TV, they had to reject and refuse what they said, and then they were freed and released. So, uh, this is what I, I try to see. One is the nationalistic signs, on the other hand, the secular demands, which are not still political organization. They are small social claims that exist in small groups within Tehran and different urban center is particularly urban center a trend but also we have a periphery and rural which are on the for example nationalistic side also they are on that many of them they are on that uh, let's say uh, trend but we don't have studying on that in this research so I'm not uh, focusing on that the second part which is the shorter I try to be just 10 minutes more like this we have time yeah. for the question and answer is what happened in front of these trends that we said? So this nationalistic and secular trend, I'm not able to say you exact measure of that, but it exists. And 
In front of that, from 1970 till 2015, what happened? What Islamic Republic did? So, uh, my theory is on the, basing on the fact that Islamic Republic actually is a very sophisticated political model that could be defined as a peculiar hybrid regime. By this I mean that it's neither a pure authoritarian system nor a pluralistic political uh, system, certainly. Well, I try to argue that, and if I'm not saying here, you, if you, you want, you could have a look on that. On the British Journal of Middle Eastern Studies, we just published a study on that, which is about the Islamic Republic as a peculiar hybrid regime. So by saying so, I mean that the Islamic Republic is not China, is not North Korea, which is just repressing this kind of stuff. It also repress, because it's not a democracy. It's, it's a semi-authoritarian and hybrid regime, in my opinion. So what were the answers and the strategies of Islamic Republic? The first one certainly is the one, the classic one, the use of force. So repression, since 97 till 2015, we have many youth bloggers, human rights activists, religious minorities, journalists, putting in jail, many years, also poets, the poets I named before, all of them they were in jail for one, two or three or four years. So the use of force, has been existed. So this is not to deny. So the harsh part of the regime exists, but it's not only that. As the Islamic Republic is a sophisticated political system, it's also able to intercept the social trend and to understand at least partially this changing and trying to have a kind of accountability and responsiveness. Which are these responsiveness? On the nationalistic part, The most interesting example is a Mahmoud Ahmadinejad presidency, particularly the second mandate from 2009 until 2013. We suddenly have been seeing Ahmadinejad turn to be a popular nationalist. So what he did, for example, for the first time he started to celebrate within the Islamic Republic the idea of Cyrus the Great, the idea of Persepolis. He's the one who managed during his presidency to have the possibility to have six months from British Museum, the cylinder of Cyrus the Great, which is an important icon of Persian identity, of nationalism identity. And it is something which is exactly against the doctrine of Ayatollah Khomeini, of the Khomeini's doctrine. Because the first months after the Iranian revolution, the 79 revolution, exactly the first months after that, under the Ayatollah Khomeini's order, a group of Shia militia, they went to destroy Persepolis, the pre-Islamic icon. And they have been stopped by the local people and the governor of the time, who was a patriotic, close to Bazargan, he was kind of half-nationalist, half-Islam. Anyway, he has been stopping them from destroying uh, Persepolis. So the idea of Khomeini's, particularly in the 80s and 90s, is not something which is celebrating Cyrus the Great or <laughs> celebrating Persepolis. But Ahmadinejad, for example, starts to celebrate that. His vice president, Esfandiyar Rahim Mashai, in one of his speeches in 2012, he said that it's a time to get closer to Maktab-e-Irani and not to Maktab-e-Islami, which means it's important to get close to the Iranian school, not anymore to the Islamic school. And by doing so, the, for example, Ahmadinejad administrations managed to intercept the nationalistic a part of this nationalistic trend between the civil society. Also the nuclear deal, 
and the nuclear case turned to become something close to the Mossadegh's oil nationalization. So the idea is a nationalism, the idea of nuclear. So this is one example that I tried from the nationalistic perspective. But from the secularism part, well, this is mostly uh, the interception from the regime, from the Islamic Republic, is from the so-called pragmatist and reformist. Former President Rafsanjani, former President Khatami, and current President Hassan Rouhani. Rafsanjani is a more pragmatist, Rouhani too, Khatami more reformist, but they are at the same blockage now, as a from political front. So what they start to do already in 97, coming back to what I said before, when the young generation were coming, Khatami already star starts to make this responsiveness. He speaks about civil society, Jamee Madani, uh, he speaks about some freedoms, and he attracts a part of this youth which were coming. So he managed to give some answer, even though in practice he doesn't uh, really respect that, but in the slogans, he managed to answer to these claims. Then you have Rouhani, which is very interesting for me, is that Rouhani's campaign, electoral campaign, uh, I found an interesting statement of Rouhani that maybe... Uh, I will just find it and see, yes. Rouhani's speech on July 2013, after his election, just one month after, shows how the pragmatists, they try to intercept and have a responsiveness towards the secular demands of the youth. The, let's say that the government proclaimed several times its willingness to abolish censorship of the web, and to give women access to sports stadiums. These are two recurring subjects and grievance of society. And these timid openings emphasize the willingness of the pragmatist faction of the Islamic Republic to appear more accountable regarding the secular demands of civil society. I just cite Rouhani's speech, a part of that, about happiness and obligatory awail which are exactly the same two things that two, three years before we see from coming from the civil society. He says, Rouhani, I quote here, being pure for women is something that goes beyond wearing the hijab. If a woman does not wear the hijab in compliance with our principles, it does not imply that she is impure. Before the revolution, there were many women not wearing it. Does it mean they were impure? I recommend not comparing the use of hijab to human purity. I'm well aware that several women do not completely respect the hijab, but I also know that this does not imply their lack of purity. Some people think that when a young man and women go out together, have a walk in the mountains, go to parties or walk together in the streets, this could somehow harm public morality. The truth is that what threatens, threatens public morality is something else. These ideas have political and ideological origins. Be sure that the denial of happiness, the denial of happiness, is not among the founding principles of the Islamic revolution. There is no slogan of the revolution that goes against young people's happiness. Well, I interpret this statement, a responsiveness of a hybrid regime, towards a changing of civil society. Because the same Rouhani during 80s and 90s 
was a member of the more radical apparatus of the Islamic Republic. He was the one who was giving order to the moral police to stop the youth who were listening to music in the street. Uh, he was one of the most important members of the radical and conservative part of the Islamic Republic. So I'm not going to have an ideological approach to that. You have a technical approach of responsiveness of a regime, which is hybrid, and understands that there is a change in the civil society, and tries partially to include that. Conclusion. Three-minute conclusion, and I'm done. Uh, the conclusion is uh, based on three factors. The first one is that, according to this paper, there is an important social trend and change in Iran within the youth, particularly, but not only, which is based partially on nationalism and secularism that we have been trying to give some example, but our political science measures here are not the stronger one. We need more work on that and to get a bit, but it's the first step to work on that. Secondly, Islamic Republic is not ignoring this change is not unnoticed by Islamic Republic, this change. So the Islamic Republic record this change and is trying to give answers, which could be harsh and could be soft in a both cases. So there are the both answers of Islamic Republic. Third question is the demographic change and shock which Iranian society is suffering now. On one hand, we have almost 50 million Iranians of 75 million under 40 years. And then we have a, another very small faction beyond 60. Between 40 and 60, we have a lack, we have a demographic lack. Because many of them, at least one million of them, they are the ones who died in the war against Saddam. And many of them which are arrested or they are ideologized inside of the system, or many of them they are abroad, the so-called diaspora, many of them. What happened is that you don't have also, and this was noticed in, in 2009, that you don't have a new elite, new social and political elite in Iran because of the demographic gap. Many of them, they are between 17 and 24, between 24 and 29, and between 29 and 36, 37. These are the revolutionary generation, the one who born after or within 79. So these youth, they are growing and is a demographic, demographic factor. And in 10 years, they start to be 44, 40, 42, 45. And then the others, they start to be 25. So this demographic gap, in my opinion, certainly will influence, I don't know in which direction, but will influence the very fragile equilibrium which at this moment exists between the Persian civil society, that we try to draw part of that, because then there are also traditional part two, is not this one part that I'm throwing, and the Islamic Republic as a hybrid regime. I will stop here. Thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, well, thank you very much, Pedro. Thank you very much. Um, that was absolutely fascinating. Um, First of all, I'm glad that under your demographic scheme we still count the youth. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, That's why I did it, you know. Yeah. Uh, um, well, there's, I think there's a lot to uh, engage with there. I have some questions of my own, but I'll hold on to those for a while and give others a chance to ask their questions. Um, if you could just, we are, first of all, I should tell you, we are recording this event, just so you know. Um, so please speak up so that this microphone can 
catch your voice. Um, and if you could please remember that a question ends with a question mark. That would be very helpful. Yes, please. Um, my question is, to, to what extent uh, do you think the diaspora is responsible for supporting this revival? And um, on top of that, I guess, to what extent is it hurtful? Is too much support hurtful? Because for me, one could argue that too much pressure from external um, populations could mean the Iranian regime will clamp down more once they see this ex external support or cheerleading of, of this secular revival. Mm -hmm. um, so, so where's the kind of fine line for the diaspora to support the population of Iran in this movement? No, you please go ahead. Right. It gives others some time okay. to think about the questions. All right. Yeah, very, thank you for your question. It's very interesting. Yeah, I think that actually this would bring to the idea of def to define Iranian opposition, which is very difficult. It's something very difficult because Persians are individualists and it's very difficult to them to make an groups and opposition, also in diaspora. But I think that diaspora uh, is certainly could make a kind of support, but what is mostly important to underline in what is coming within the society. So these things that uh, we will see also maybe, I would ask Sandra later on to show this uh, small clip, this is, doesn't have anything to do with diaspora, doesn't have anything to do with some old-fashioned opposition abroad, which is using old icons, monarchy, mujahideen, or whatever, communist, leftist, nationalist, these are new. These, I, I call them new opposition. With arrival of them, you don't have kind of those kind of diaspora as a political diaspora. In my opinion, they don't work. They cannot communicate with them because they, these are something new which comes. This is a new opposition. I would call new opposition is not political opposition. It's particularly social and cultural opposition. And they showed that they are peaceful. They went to, they, they, they don't know the origin of Islamic Republic, the nature. They went 2009, 2010 without any arms in the streets. And the paramilitary, they were shutting them from the roof. So they were just completely naive somehow in the streets. They went completely peaceful. So I see that this is something new, which is completely different with old opposition, which they were using militia of, I don't know, leftists, mujahideen, supported by Palestinian forces, and this kind of stuff against the Shah. So these are totally another thing. So I would say that um, the diaspora could help, but in a limited version, not in a... What could maybe be stronger is the uh, cultural support and economic support of them, yes. In this case, yes. But it's important to underline that the claim of secularism that I see here between these youth is not the westernization. One of the dangers is that to put the mark that they are westernized. So it's very easy for them to have claims for democracy and progress without being post-colonial Western. Thank you. Other questions, please. Yes, sir. Uh, I know that at the start of this, you said you weren't focusing so much on foreign policy. Uh, but I was wondering the extent to which the actual foreign policy in the region and the, the rise of Tahirism and whatnot will actually mean that, at least in the short term, in terms of a system of governance, you actually maintain the Islamic parts of the Islamic Republic rather than the other side um, for reasons of security. And also the extent to which 
you actually see conversions not so much as a uh, secularization of civil society, but actually uh, de-Islamicization. Yeah. No. yeah, I got it. Yeah. Let's take a few more yeah. and take them together. Yes, please. Um, you mentioned yourself a few times that this is not easy to measure, this revival. Yeah. Yet you claim that it's, a, it's an important um, yeah. event. I'm wondering how that works, especially because I guess looking at the examples you give can give a very biased picture of the today's Iran. Mm -hmm. Like people wearing tattoos or mm -hmm. know, saying the origins of Salah. Yeah. There are a lot of other examples that can yeah. Thank you very much. And this gentleman here. Yeah. Uh, can you also just uh, talk a tiny bit about like economic and educational background of your of the people uh, interviewed? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Yes. yes, please. All right. So uh, starting from uh, from the first one, uh, or maybe I start from the end, like this. I arrived there. So. Um, well, uh, the economic background and the social and cultural background, actually, it's something interesting to underline that there is mostly uh, the narrative that they are middle class guys or middle class people who are coming in the street and like this. So, certainly, I think that there are many middle class who are working on that and the, the economic background of that. But uh, we have different examples coming from the uh, periphery which have been using the same. One interesting example that emphasizes that is the case of Sattare Behishti. Sattare Behishti is a young Iranian blogger from Robot Karim, which is a very uh, working class area close to Tehran. And he was in blog writing several nationalistic and secular and claim from democracy. He was a blogger. And he will be captured in, if I'm not wrong, 2012 or 13, I'm not exactly remembering, two or three years ago, from the public police, moral police, and after a couple of hours, he will die under torture. So, it's, and he became a kind of icon. It was an interesting, because he was coming from that part of the society that normally is claimed to be more traditional, more periphery, more Islamic oriented, and he was completely the opposite. I mean, it could, someone could argue he's an exception. But it's an interesting example, uh, and we have some other example of that, that I wouldn't, in this case, go in a traditional idea of uh, working class, middle class, economy, wealthy, like this. I see that this is some generational changing. A generational changing which is a mixture, and now I get to the answer to the other friend who asked a question, is a mixture, in my opinion, of Islamic identity. I said there is an important Islamic tradition and Islamic democrats and secular progressive. We are not able to say who are because we don't have any votation on that, we don't have any possibility to give. So there are these both spirits which are within this new opposition of this new youth, this new generation. The part which is more Islamist, which says Salam or wants to have a foreign policy, and then I talked, which is, for example, that part of this youth, which is more Islamo-Democrat, I would define them like this. For example, in foreign policy, they support Iranian involvement as a Shia actor, as a Shia player, Iranian involvement on support of Hezbollah, Hamas. The secular part is completely against that is going to undermine the Iranian support of Hezbollah, of Hamas, and all of these parts. 
And we have seen, for example, one interesting slogan in 2009, between those slogans was coming, نه غزه, نه لبنان, جانم فدای ایران. No Gaza, no Lebanon, only Iran. Of course, it was not something personal against Lebanese. It was the idea that no the support of Islamic Republic to Hamas, not the support of Islamic Republic to Hezbollah, and focus on Iranian policy. Of course, this part is not accepted for the Islamic part of the same youth, the same generation. So the fact that we have at least these two great spirit inside of this generational changing, I would certainly say here, I just brought examples of secularism and nationalism. And certainly we have within the Iranian society many traditionalism still, very much, and it's normal that it be because Iran is one of the most important uh, countries with uh, Islamic history and Shia history, but has always have a buy. Some certain time the Persian comes up, Iranese comes up, sometimes Islamist comes up. I mean, there is a kind of going up and down. 79, we have this rise of Islamism, and is a kind of also, and now I connect to your question, is a kind also a, a reaction, de-Islamization or deconstruction of political Islam, which comes up. In my work, I have one example of one interesting article of the attendance of the mosque. Iran is, has the less attendance of the mosque comparing the other most 10 important Muslim countries. Egypt, Malaysia, and Indonesia. You have it on the paper, you could see. There is all the graphs on that. So, the de-Islamization is a reaction to the use of Islam as a political authoritarianism. So certainly it's not that the people are not Muslim. It's, they are not anymore ease with political Islam in the public sphere. Something, for example, which commands the youth, both from Islamist part or secular part, for example, the separation of politics from religion, or the, the basic freedoms. So uh, about Salam and the root, coming back to the friend who did the question, certainly there are many people who said Salam. But this was a monopoly of language from 79 till 97. This monopoly starts to break from 97 till 2015. We are not able to give a clear measure of that, but on the websites, on the satellites, you find important proof of that. I'm saying I'm not able to give a measure, particularly because I want to have a very strict scientific work in the political science idea. But in a more slightly broader idea, you could see the sign of this changing. Okay, other questions? Yes, please. Uh, while, uh, while conducting the study, especially when you ask young people very openly about their political and religious beliefs, did you find yourself in any kind of uh, scrutiny by the, by the government in an attempt to censor your work? So, uh, could you, could you She's asking whether when you were conducting your research, yeah. you found yourself being scrutinized by ah. the government. Well, certainly these are the topics that not, uh, not each... Iranian scholar would touch it easily because when you touch this kind of thing you touch a kind of nerves which could be, you know, but this is the work that in the scholarship we do, we try to be neutral as much as possible and to work on the things, so it's the duty of scholarship to work in a neutral and objective way as much as possible, but not also abandon the topics which are there. Any other question? Yes, please. Um, I was just wondering about the number of people who are declaring their, I mean, obviously not openly, but declaring their faith um, to lie in other religions rather than atheists in particular. Um, so 
Uh, but particularly you've got the Zoroastrian, yeah. um, uh, Christian and Baha'ism. Yeah. And I was wondering if people are converting, that suggests to me, I think, that there, is an act, there are active institutions supporting them to do that. And given the number of those that you can find, presumably there's quite a movement there. And even though it's a small fraction compared to the number of Muslim, practicing Muslims, is that, do you think, a, a, a basis for mobilization politically? Or anything like that? Uh, no, 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 no. Because these conversions are only um, kind of using, is a kind of refusal of a model which has been imposed on you. So you were 10 years old. This generation are those generations that from their childhood they had to, they have been doctrinized inside of the school of Islam Republic. Yeah. Every day, every, the first day of the schools, they had to cut their hairs, zero not putting jeans, not going with the girls out. So this is the psychological, mostly, profile of them. So they certainly matured, and they brought a kind of refusal towards the use of pastoral authoritarianism. So some of them, they just don't care. Some of them, they react becoming atheist or against God. You could go on Facebook, find groups like against God, Satanism. I didn't want to use those things, but there are small things. And then you have those who, who are a bit softer, they want to be in the framework of religion, they don't want to go out from the framework of religion, so they find something more familiar. Zoroastrianism is something very much familiar, because it's your religion, which was before Islam, so you find commonalities, you get to that. Baha'i is coming in Iran, it's an Iranian religion, it comes in the 19th century, it's modern, it comes in Iran, so it's more familiar. Christianity may be less familiar culturally, but there are different connections. And the idea of spirituality, these, these categories are very spiritual. And they find their spirituality to these things. And you have this kind of, and you have many converted, particularly to Christianity, which are a bit easier to find from the moral police, that they have been condemned and put in jail. We have, you could make a search and you, you will find them. Not many, but we have many, in some cases of that. And, uh, of course, both Zoroastrian community and Baha'is community, which are more rooted within Iran, they are trying to avoid as much as possible publicly to accept them. So that's why I'm saying hidden conversion. You don't have... You, we could, of course, I could tell you that the Baha'i community and Zoroastrian community tells me that per week they have some... But, I mean, we don't have a data of that. But certainly I interviewed people of that community who are responsible. So... But I, I cannot have data. Yes, please. And thanks for the interesting uh, paper. Thank you. I think that the demographic uh, profile of Iran that you described it really reminds me of the rest of the region, the Middle East, especially in like, places like uh, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and many other countries. And what you described, we can see it happening across the region as well. And this youth. A culture that is emerging, some of it is nationalistic and some of it is secular, and even with some pockets that don't sort of verge on atheism, and they're using social media to express themselves. But, um, you know, what my question is um, we know what happened with these Arab uprisings and the Iranian green movement, the confrontation. So, uh, in a way, my question uh, to you is what needs to happen for these dispersed? Uh, cultural and social trends to become political and what the obstacles are. 
Uh, and, and this is exactly the crisis of the Arab world at the moment, because they did come together, they demonstrated, they had public presence, but they failed to organize themselves or were prevented from organizing themselves. It seems to me that the Iranians have managed to go as far as supporting the Green Movement, but with repression, everything sort of went back to this comfortable zone, which is the culture and yeah. society. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you very much, Madame. Uh, well, I think that uh, yes, I think that there are interesting, uh, uh, in the comp comparative perspective, interesting thing. Actually, personally, I'm working on some comparing between what happened in Egypt 2011 and what happened 1979 in Iran, finding interesting parallels between Shah and. Uh, and Mubarak and the rule of... Anyway, it's, it's interesting to make this comparison. I totally agree, and also the youth movement. And uh, I think that one of the most important problems certainly is the lack, as you said, of political organization. And uh, it's... Well, I don't have, to be honest, a right solution for that, but I think one, one thing which could certainly become interesting is if there will be a kind of interconnections between uh, the youth within and the youth who are coming out, not the one that they are diaspora, they live out. The one which are coming out, they stay out and they could make groups and they could make some organization. Facebook helps very much that. They, ha they try with social media, they are trying to have some, but they are certainly not a political mind oriented. So this is something which is different with 79 in Iran. In 79 in Iran you had many youth which were political oriented, particularly coming from leftist school. So they knew the art of organization, organization is power. So they knew how to make organization. Uh, these young generation, they are, in my opinion, very uh, kind of, they don't have this cultural part of politics because also they have been growing in different, uh, let's say, dimension. They, what is important is they know very well the nature of the Islamic Republic. I think they, these youth, they are the one who grew up inside of the system, and they are the one which much better than whatever analysts you have in the world, they know the Islamic Republic as a system. So they try to, as I said, a fragile equilibrium, so somehow they understand when they should come out, when they should go home, when they should organize, and it's going random like this. For example, now they know how is the situation, and you have more because of the regional problem, you have more quietness. But at a certain point, when they understood that there is one hole in the system, they come out. So it's a kind of equilibrium between them. It's interesting, this game that is between these two uh, categories. I don't think that is going to be solved with political organization in a classical way. I think if something changes in 10 or 15 years, it will be a kind of wave. Wave which at a certain point comes, maybe needs of some elite which demographically gets a bit older, which could create an organization or something, but it won't be classic. I don't see this art of classic organization. If I can abuse yeah. my, my privilege to, as a chair and ask you a question. Um, uh, this is completely anecdotal, okay, but I remember in, um, uh, in uh, 2001, I think it was, when, when the President Khatami was running for re-election. 2000. Uh, what? 2001. What? Yes. And um, and uh, he was very reluctant to run 
for re-election. And uh, I, somebody who I heard from somebody who was involved in the various discussions with him, and they kept pushing him and pushing him. And he said, "Look, um, there's no point in me running for re-election." And and they said, "Why?" And he said, "Because." He said, because my supporters, they sit at home and they press like on Facebook and our enemies come into the street and they beat us, right? And he said, uh, this is the fundamental problem. Uh, and so my point is, the reason I say this is that demographically, where do you think is the tipping point? At what point do the demographics change do you think to the extent that there is actually an existential threat to the exist you know to the existence of the Islamic Republic because it seems to me just and totally anecdotally that they only need a very small proportion of the population to, to remain loyal in order for the system to survive and perpetuate itself yeah. that's my first I have another one too also anecdotal my impression from my visits to Iran is that Young people, much like young people everywhere, have become very completely depoliticized. There's, uh, you struggle to have a meaningful conversation with people about politics. They're disgusted by politics. They don't want to talk about politics. The two issues that seem to energize them, one is class, the massive class disparities that have developed in Iran, particularly in the period of sanctions. You know, the rich kids of Tehran <coughs> phenomenon. Um, and the second is gender. Yeah, the m the most interesting, in my opinion, dynamic, m strong, mobilized faction of Iranian society are young women, and you see that you see it in the hijab campaign. Even I think last year there was a campaign on the part of Iranian husbands to denounce their right yeah. to allow their wife to leave the country. You know, right. And, and this is very interesting and seems to me a much bigger threat to the Islamic Republic than what happened in 2009. In, in existential terms, I mean, that is a really big threat, I think. So what's, did that come up in your interviews and what's your, where does that fit, do you think, in the, in the balance of things? Thank you very much, Rohan. Particularly the second, I'll start from the second. I totally agree with you. I think that the women's role and the gender issue is the most weaker point of the Islamic Republic. And particularly the hijab case. I mean, the fact that the women, which is obliged, is not a choice. It may be a choice or not, to put a veil. Basically, a part of them, they put a part of a hairs out from here and from the other side, is a kind of symbolic expression that if I can, I don't put it. You oblige me, I put half like this. So I agree with you. I think that the, one of the most important things that the Islamic Republic didn't manage to do is the imposition or total imposition of the rules over the women. And also, for example, I think it's connected to your observation, the fact of not letting women to the sports stadiums. It became a big issue. And Probably the Islamic Republic would even let them go into stadium, but symbolically doesn't want to give up one part of his, let's say, imposition, because he's afraid that afterwards there will be another coming. And I think, I totally agree with you that uh, 
uh, and maybe I could connect to Madawi's also question, that maybe one of the interesting part is the women's role inside of Iran, and maybe or might be the women, particularly youth, uh, youth and not, because it's not the question of generation in that case, that they may at a certain point do something kind of breaking symbols, because Islamic Republic is also based on ideological symbols. So a day that you have women who are breaking symbols is a problem for Islamic Republic. And this is, I, I agree with that, I, and, and I have seen that you have this curiosity more between women. And also women are more politicized than the men, yes. also the youth. And also in the Green Movement, you also in that case, it was clear that many women, they were in the front line, many girls. And, uh, and Neda was one example on that. And, uh, and the other thing is, uh, the, the first thing you said, sorry, I, the, the question of, of, of uh, pushing Facebook, yeah. Well, I think that, yes, I think that Islamic Republic doesn't need to have a great uh, consensus. I agree with you that for them is enough to have those four or five millions, which are not little, amount of supporters, which are normal for each authoritarian system, like in fascism in Italy, we had many people, I say we because I'm half Italian, so in that case, I mean, we had many, many people who are, who were completely integrated into the system, conformism, opportunism, and then ideology, the three things. So certainly, yes, I think that, and actually what is interesting that the hybridity of the Islamic Republic is also on the ins institutions. So you have paramilitary forces, which are not only paramilitary forces which are coming to the street. They are in each institution, in universities, in the schools, in the hospitals. So you have in each institution a part of the system which is connected to the regime and which is getting benefits, economic benefits, from the system. So, I mean, in this case, Islamic Republic is 100% much more sophisticated than the Shah's political system. I mean, Shah was alone in front of everybody, in and once you fail, you fail. But in the Islamic Republic, one thing with the hybridity explains is that when something fails, the hybridity of the system, look at now, many reformists and people are saying, yes, yeah, it's, it's all the fault of Ahmadinejad. It's all on him, not on the Supreme guy. So it all, it's all on the, magi on the judiciary power. Rouhani says, you know, I want to do it, but the judiciary power is the one who is hanging, is not me. So yeah, I, I wanted to do it. So this hybridity uh, show you never could, you know, and that's an interesting part. But the women case, I totally agree with that. They could be an interesting and maybe the most important part. Thanks for reminding me. Any more questions? Yes, please. So we understand that there is a move, like a more secular movement amongst the youth, especially in Iran. Is there a counter movement of possibly, like, the, by their own motivation, or possibly through propaganda by the government of, want, uh, amongst the youth, of wanting a more Islamic form of government? Because, for instance, in Pakistan, where I'm from, there is a secular a movement amongst the youth for more a more secular form of government. But similarly, amongst equally educated youth from the same sort of society, there's a movement for less secular more Islamic <coughs> Is there something similar in Iran? Because if there isn't, would you say that the Islamic Republic would eventually just die out in X number of years? Don't know how much, but if it, there is so much secularism, would it die out? Well, I, 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 thank you. I, I think I tried to say that maybe I was not clear. Yes, there is. Certainly there is. I mean, in the, the same generation, you have 
people who are still with political Islam too. Those maybe could be divided also into groups at least. One that I would call them Islamic Democrats, that maybe they want a radical reform of the Islamic Republic. For example, they want, for example, they, that Supreme Guide would take out, they will be only a president of the republic. I mean, kind of making more democratic this system. So there is a, also is an important part this you have. And then you have more radical. If you call, ask from me if there is a strong radical political Islam like a 79, no. This I'm sure that is very, it, it is, but it's little. But the part which is more for Islamic Democrats idea is consistent. And then you have this secular progressive part which doesn't want the Islamic Republic and wants, as we said, Iranian Republic. So it's kind of architecture, I, I, I could say, in a general way. Then you have all, always between them, I mean, Iranian society is very, very heterogeneous. It's very difficult to, you know, it's very, you know, could change. I think if there would be a real elected parliament, it would be like Italy, that you never have a government because you would have a small factions coming out. So this is a bit the reality. But if I want to put in a big blocks, I would say yes. I don't think that radical political Islam, Khomeinism, these kind of things are any more strong in Iran. But Islamic democracy is strong. I'm not sure if it's more than secular, but it's strong. I'm not able to tell you the, the level. They are both strong. How much time do you need to show the clip? One minute. Just one minute? Let's okay. show it. Let's show the clip then. Cool. I want to run out of time. Yeah. yeah. Can we get out of the way?
<laughs> Can't tell if it's Shoreditch or something else. <laughs> so. Thank you, Sandra. Yes, please, in the back. Hi, I've got a question that's actually sort of related to the video. Um, quite a lot's been written um, about uh, the impact of consumerism under communism in Eastern Europe and how this could have a sort of politicising influence, not in terms of creating formal political opposition, but in terms of people carving identities separate from the state. And I was wondering whether you thought that consumerism in Iran had played any role in this revival of secularism and nationalism that you've seen, and the lift, whether the, if so, whether the lifting of economic sanctions could anyway increase this. A oh, very nice question, a very interesting question. Could help me when I research this question. Thank you. And, uh, uh, well, I think that certainly consum and consumism and the idea of having, because it's a kind of connection between consumism, color, and life. So, in that perspective, yes. I mean, this generation that has been grow up particularly under a gray color because the schools were gray the imposition was not colorful now not anymore but at least 10 years ago when they were child at least or they were growing <coughs> so certainly they have seen in in the kind of separation identity like the genes as i said or other icons which are also western in this case but it's not, it's not a question of westernizing, it's a very important, is to see the beauty on color. So where you find the color, you get it, but it's not because you're westernized. So that's a very important, a subtle thing that I would say. Yes, I think that consuming and using more prosperity, let's say like this, is something that m part of this secularism and nationalism is looking for. One of the critics critic that they do, these parts, I specify this part, does, is, for example, that too much Shia Islamic uh, martyrdom celebrations. Every week, one of the Imam is dying, and there should be, you know, for them, they should celebrate that and crying. So, what they do, they want the opposite. So, they go to take as much as possible whatever is beauty and colorful. So, or they find in the pre Islamic thing, like Sadeh, Mehregan, or they celebrate some Valentine. In the last five years, ten years, if you go to Valentine's Day in, in Tehran, particularly in this case, or some other urban center, you see many stores selling Valentine stuffs. It's not because they're westernized. They, they, they look a color. Wherever there is color against the gray, they got it. So this is what I would say. Any other questions? No? Okay. okay. I think we tired you out. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs>